Hi, everyone. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, I'm again speaking with HAF's Isan Katir about Dharmic investing, the Dharmic ethics of losing money, and a number of other topics about understanding and managing your money through a Hindu lens. Isan, do you know that you are the most frequent guest on this podcast? There have been some people that have been on twice, but this will be your third visit. Oh my gosh, I'm so honored. Well, <laughs> investing in money, as much as many of us would like to just engage in spiritual pursuits, or we, you know, unless we're living in an ashram, we need to think about money. So here we go. Well, yes, for better or worse, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it was June last year where, oh, it was June last year you were on the show. It Today is actually the beginning of July. This will come out in the next couple of weeks. So let's take a really big picture here. What do you think our dharma is in relation to money? Well, uh, Hindus, as the highest earning immigrant group, probably thinks about money a lot. Uh, so we want to handle wealth carefully. And, and that means according to dharma, uh, artha and dharma, hand in hand, our scriptures tell us. Uh, in fact, uh, a Swami once told me, consider the world just an ashram, a large ashram where we work to ennoble ourselves. So uh, we want to do that while we're accumulating wealth. Uh, what do they call it? The purushartha, our duty to acquire wealth. And that's not just selfish wealth, but to feed families, uh, temples, and, uh, to the needy, to support HAF, you know, all kinds of good things. So if it's a very, if, if it's a classically accepted, good, encouraged thing to think about money and accumulate money, obviously, ethically, we don't want to be cheating anyone. We don't want to be hurting anyone. The yamas and niyamas still apply. Do you believe it's against Dharma? It's to lose money? Well, I've thought a lot about that. And if it's our Dharma to accumulate wealth, then it logically seems to be, doesn't it, that the, uh, it would be odd dharma, not dharma, to dissipate wealth. Uh, so yes, I think that's a big part of it. So we need to learn how to uh, do our best to uh, avoid big losses and uh, avoid risking money where uh, we'd be exposed to a large loss and to be a bit, bit conservative. So we're not talking here about, say, you know, I don't know what I was going to ask there. I'm just going to back up. I was thinking about, well, I'll just cut this out, but you know, it's like we're moving right now. Maybe, mm. I'll, maybe I'll leave it in. But you know, we're, we're moving right now. I'm planning to move back to New York City after spending three years in California. Uh, and, culture you know, shock. Well, no, no <laughs> culture shock. It was a time zone shock in terms of my wife's working and uh. she largely works on the East Coast and getting up. We get up early anyway, but there's a big difference between getting up at 5.36 a.m. and easing into the day or to be very classically Hindu, doing some sort of spiritual pursuit and having to get on a phone call and run a business at 6 a.m. Yeah, you um, tell me about it. I've been doing that for a while. <laughs> so, I, you know, it, what I was thinking is obviously there's a conservative view of money, small C conservative, not taking huge risks. We're not mm -hmm. talking politics, big C, big L's here. Um, and, you know, we're dividing up our stuff because there's some things that maybe we don't need in New York. Mm. And we're going to put some stuff in storage for a while for a number of reasons. 
So we're not talking when we're talking about losing money here, saying, well, should we get rid of this table that's outside? We're not talking about that. You're talking about more of an investing long-term view of things. That's correct. Yes. Yes, that's that's correct. That uh, one can accumulate wealth by just uh, putting one's savings into treasury bills and you can earn 5% these days, which we do for uh, lots of retired folks. But there are more aggressive people that want to um, take advantage of some of the great uh, growth companies that come along from time to time. And uh, so it's good to study how that works and look at a few examples in history of these uh, big trends up and down. One early example was way back in the 18th century in England, Francis Egerton, the third Duke of Bridgewater. He owned a coal mine in Worsley outside of Manchester. And mules used to transport his coal into the city of Manchester to all the customers. Um, Then inspired by a canal in France called the Canal du Midi, uh, he commissioned a canal to be built the eight kilometers from Worsley to Manchester, and his mules could pull 10 times as much on a flat bottom barge than they could carry on their back. So this worked so well that the Duke created many canals. And at the time, uh, at his height, he became the wealthiest royal in England just from canals. That was the high tech, cool new thing of the time, as much as a Apple uh, iPhone announcement these days. And so seeing that and hearing all about that, other people formed lots of companies to build lots of canals and investors flocked to buy shares. And it became known back then as the canal mania. And of course, news came across the pond to the emerging market of the United States. And uh, the Erie Canal was built to to carry coal and many others in this canal mania. And uh, it all worked very well. People made a lot of money. But then some enterprising industrialists figured out how to put a steam engine on wheels and called it a locomotive. And they built a track right alongside the Erie Canal. Uh, and they found they could transport coal way faster and way cheaper on a train than in the canal. So the uh, canal mania crashed. The shares went way down in value. The canal traffic dropped by two thirds and the railroad mania began in the uh, 19th century and continued for uh, much of that century. And those shares also went through overbuilding and overinvestment and speculation. And there were panics and uh, big trends up and over 80% of the trading on the New York Stock Exchange in the mid 1800s was in railroad stocks, which uh, that hasn't even been surpassed by the high tech stocks of this day. So those are two examples of, of trends that turned into manias that if one takes a look at it and follows history, uh, one could uh, profit from. Uh, on TV, they call them bubbles, which is a completely inaccurate term because a bubble exists and it pops and it's completely gone. If you look at a time series chart of prices of these railroad investments or canal investments, it's shaped like a big mountain. You have the little foothills on the left side of the chart as people start to invest. And then finally, the mania where everyone wants to invest and then there's no more buyers and that's the peak of the mountain. And then it kind of drifts off on the right side, uh, looks more like a Grand Tetons than a, than a bubble. Uh, so I think it's worthwhile to study these, these big trends and uh, increase our wealth uh, by participating, as long as we know when to invest and when to divest. 
for those listeners that don't quite get why people are building canals, just a quick diversions for history lesson here. Before there were motorways and before, as Isan pointed out, there were railways. It was far easier to move goods by water, whether that was river, ocean, or, you know, as he pointed out, people building canals. It's much easier to do that. There was just not the roadway it would take, using England as the example, it's much easier to sail around England sometimes than go across it because the roads were just inadequate. And then the railway, the reason why that eclipsed everything, I didn't know I was going to be doing this little history bit here today is that it would move along the same route and it would just move at a faster speed and you can move it at a very routine schedule. And that's actually how we had time zones and we have blocks and, it, uh, and the, and the modern world came into being essentially uh, the railway cannot be underestimated in that way. Um, so if that was the mania of, you know, 150 years ago, what do you think the current mania is? Oh, good, good question. Yes, since the railroad mania, um, there was the automobile mania, the first automobile mania around the turn of the 20th century. There were 100 car companies back then, and uh, only four General Motors and a few others survived. Then there was the electronics mania, and uh, uh, before that, radio, and then, of course, the famous dot-com of the late 20th century. Uh, the current one is AI, artificial intelligence, and we're midway in that uh, mania, in my estimation. But from the Hindu perspective, what is there something that's uniquely Hindu? Or are we just talking numbers on a spreadsheet in terms of mania? Is there something Hindus, in your opinion, whether that's the opinion as a staff member of HAF, a former monk, not let's <laughs> let us all remember, someone versed in the tradition that we should be thinking about when it comes to AI, in your opinion? Oh, well, uh, as far as investing, um, uh, I think we can look at the planting season and the harvest season the way a rice farmer would would look at that. Um, uh, so that is is kind of the Artha Dharma part of it. But the, and of course, the, the company part of it is different. We still have railroads and they're crucial to the economy, but they just aren't in a mania anymore. So AI will be crucial to the future of the world, but it won't always be an investment mania as the dust settles and companies consolidate. But as far as the Hindu point of view, uh, there's nothing like money to uh, activate the emotions of envy and impatience, and frustration and fear, false hope, disappointment, despair, regret, even euphoria. So while doing our dharma of acquiring wealth, we could uh, improve our character and work on the ethics that are mentioned by Patanjali, and you mentioned them, yamas and niyamas, which are mentioned in 50 Hindu scriptures. And what a convenient place uh, the uh, ashram of the world provides uh, to the investment world to develop our kshama, our patience, and santosha, contentment with what we have, mati, Cognition, being able to discern these trends, and dritti, steadfastness, uh, dana, giving to uh, charitable giving to HAF, uh, even Ishwara Pujana, right? We can uh, pray for uh, uh, a good investment. Not a recommended standalone investment strategy, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Praying as your investment strategy. I, you mentioned a yama in there. Um, not in the Patanjali Yamas. They're not in the 
the classic ones, but I know the tradition you come from, you in uh Kauai-Adenam, they expand the list out a bit. So yes. Donna, what what do you think is that relationship? How does one balance the the desire to earn money, you know, to to give to one's family, perhaps to give back to the, you know, earn enough that they can support themselves, support their family, live a good life, and then giving to the community. How how do you balance that? Do you think? What advice do you give to people? Well, I think it's important to uh, give according to one's means, no matter what one's means are. That it uh, it just puts one in a better frame of mind, to put it uh, one way, and you end up uh, meeting good people who also give. Uh, it's just a, a good practice in life to to give if you make you know a little bit of money a month to give a little bit if you make a lot of money uh, then to to give a lot i think it's uh, dana is one of those yamas and yamas for a good reason listeners we we went isan and i went through a bunch of questions beforehand so we, we, you know, as I always do with with guests, so we know what we're talking about. I mean, these are, we try to present these as off the cuff, but you know, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes sometimes to present that you don't do off the cuff, you know, off the cuff. A lot of the time, many shows that appear to be entirely unscripted actually went through lots of rehearsals and they landed on a script. So I'm going to go off script. One thing that's always, I have to, I have to admit has always struck me a little bit odd about investing in stocks. Hmm. And you run a hedge fund is the idea of me as an individual giving money to companies who I don't always, and I have some stocks and I, I'm not a massive investor, but I have some, you know, small investments to give money to companies that I don't, I don't know about, a lot about. I can do my hmm. research and everything, but it, it strikes me a little bit odd sometimes, you know, it's like people that just give money and invest in the stock market broadly, like say in a big index fund without being able to vet everybody in that, because to me, it feels ethically a little bit weird. Like I'm giving my money to people I may not know about. I may not always agree with. What can people do to sort of allay those concerns? I, I imagine I'm not actually alone in those, in those concerns. No. And in fact, uh, I recall you and I talked about this a bit last year and it, uh, we as Hindus want to uh, invest according to Dharma. So I analyzed the three major indices, the Dow and the S&P and the NASDAQ. And uh, in my opinion, in my analysis, the, uh, the, uh, the best the karmic uh, <laughs> effect, the smallest karmic footprint is the NASDAQ because it's in high tech companies. Whereas the Dow, you have uh, McDonald's in there, which, of course, uh, kills millions of cows per year, not something a Hindu would want to be necessarily involved in. Uh, and the S&P also has uh, companies that might be ethically challenging for the Hindu point of view. So the NASDAQ, I think, is a good place to uh, buy an index fund. And then, of course, we can pick and choose our companies uh, uh, to uh, even be more granular, but most people prefer index funds and not the, uh, the many hours of work to analyze individual companies. So then, if I want to increase my wealth, how do I actually go about doing that in a big way? What, what's the, you know, what's the in Hindu investing, the Dharmic investing for dummies? 
How do we go? Oh, that's good. I like that. We can do a book, Matt. <laughs> well, you're the, you're, you're the expert on this one. I, I, I am going through the questions and I'm being the dummy here. So please enlighten <laughs> me. Oh, well, you're, you're very modest. But the uh, I would say that we would want to uh, um, continue to invest a bit of our um, earned income, maybe 10% uh, on a regular basis into uh, an index fund and do our best to watch the trends. And uh, uh, there are mathematical formulas to analyze the trends. I wrote a book called There is a Tide, which uh, discloses one of those formulas. And that uh, uh, would be a help to uh, avoid losses and increase wealth. The other ways are more prosaic, uh, and that is to not spend more than one earns and to um, not get into debt. Debt is a, a big asura in a sense uh, that we want to avoid as much as possible. So those would be three ways. You mentioned in our notes here, something about behavioral investing. This is a new term to me. W what are we talking about? Oh, there are people that analyze the, um, the lives and lifestyles of CEOs and try to invest based on that, or they analyze the moods of the market. You know, a, a market trend will start with uh, hopelessness and then hope, and then at the top, it'll be euphoria and then uh, fear and then uh, despair at the very bottom of a market. Uh, so that's called behavioral investing, the behavior of other people. But I turn it inward. I think we should also look at our own behavior and what goes on in our own mental and emotional processes. Another word for it is the emotional quotient, the EQ. Uh, and that is, is even more important than an IQ in, in many cases, that uh, no matter what method we use to invest, uh, one of my mentors said, when we get right down to it, everyone invests according to their stomach lining. They finally hit the bottom of a market. They say, oh, I can't stand it anymore. Sell. Uh, we don't want to do that. We want to uh, be more uh, balanced in our emotions. Uh, so that's behavioral investing from the usual way of presenting it. And what I think is just as important, mm -hmm. looking in the mirror at our own uh, emotional quotient. Or appetite for risk, as they were, in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. good way to put it, too. Yeah. So last time a year ago, the everything seemed to be going going south, which is a strange expression because there's nothing wrong with south, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but the markets weren't doing so well. And you we, we had an extensive conversation about the value of avocado and some avocado investing. <laughs> and I just come back to it because I think it's so funny because who doesn't like avocado? And yeah. what what's. What's your big picture take on things right now? Avocado is still a good investment. Is there anything as perhaps offbeat from what people generally think about investing that they should be looking at right now? Obviously, with the disclaimer that this is not actual investment advice. This is just talking. Yes, uh, not investment advice. We, we should uh, realize that all of these individual companies we talk about are small parts of diversified portfolios. Indeed. <laughs> 
And after we talked about the uh, avocado company, Mission Produce, uh, it continued up. But by the end of the year, I kept analyzing the trend and it was time to uh, cash in our avocados, Matt. So uh, we we sold uh, and uh, avoided the, some of the move down that subsequently happened. Uh, so our goal, of course, is to uh, accumulate wealth, not avocados. And so we are always on the lookout for uh, change in trend. So what happened with the avocados? Because, you know, frankly, I think having you can't have too many avocados. I mean, you can just <laughs> eat them all the time. But from apparently from a financial perspective, you can. So what happened with the avocados? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, good question. I have avocados almost every morning, so I agree with you completely uh, as far as the uh, nutritional value. But the investment value, it, uh, there's a lot of competition and uh, there is not a huge profit margin sometimes. And the wholesale prices of avocados change. So we uh, we saw all of that happening and uh, we exited and then the price uh, dropped down after that when they reported some less uh, less than expected earnings got it okay then um our little dharmic investing talks here are now our third are not the longest talks on this but they're always enlightening is there anything else before we call it a call it a day here that you wanted to go over oh that was uh, the main point i think is that uh, it is dharma to accumulate wealth so logically it is adharma to dissipate wealth. So we want to learn ways to protect our capital when uh, things are not going the way we want them to. And we talked about a, a couple of ways of, of doing that. So I appreciate uh, your interest and uh, I look forward to our next get together. Me too. I have one more thing that just occurred to me. If it is against the spirit of Dharma to lose money, and, I, and maybe where I'm getting at this a question I had before, just from a different angle. What is the relationship of, or where's the balance, I should say, between that desire, that natural, that good desire to accumulate wealth and hold on to wealth and say being miserly or being stingy? Is there, is this just something that maybe it, kind of, it goes into your appetite for risk and your stomach and behavioral investing and how you feel about things? But is there something that we can, Think about it, a rule of thumb between that desire to hold on to and not to dissipate. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? It's like one can hold on to things, but then one doesn't want to be smog on top of their pile of money to use a Tolkien <laughs> reference, you know, and hold on to it. So where's that? How, do, how does one know when one's tipped over into that perhaps excessive holding on to money? Oh, good question. And there is what... Uh, um, one Swami I know calls the abyss of wealth. That is uh, just being a miser and not sharing and not giving and uh, thinking your uh, net worth is the end and be all, uh, be all and end all of life. So I would say the, the sign that one is tipped over into the miserly stage from the accumulating wealth dharmic stage would be if you if one does not. Uh, practice dana and does not give to uh, charities or help out uh, other people who are less fortunate. That would be the, the main sign, I think. Excellent. Okay, Isan, thanks so much for talking. Um, and we'll have you back, hopefully before a year. Let's make it more than, you know, more frequent than that. Oh, thanks, good. Man. I look forward to that. Well, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Th thank you. 
Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please take a minute and leave us a nice five-star review. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.